All right, so, so this is a letter that George wrote to his brother, okay? After writing from Fort Cumberland, George Washington described the Battle of Monongahela to his younger brother, John Augustine Washington, July 18, 1755. As I have heard since my arrival at this place, a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech, I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first and of assuring you that I have not as yet composed the latter. But by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. An Indian warrior later declared, Washington was never born to be killed by a bullet. I had 17 fair fires at him with my rifle, and after all, could not bring him to the ground. So the other thing that happened is this battle changed George's view of war dramatically. Whether you remember the, the, the first engagement that he ran in he got back and was all excited about the, the, the glories of war. He could hear the bullets whizzing by. Well, this changes his whole perspective. From here on, he, he takes this, the stand that it's a last resort. It's not the first thing you do. It's the last resort. And there will always be loss. And it was the dead and dying, those that were wounded and their, their cries for help that really had an, an impact on him, okay? So here, here's this craziness that went on, okay? So Braddock, they, they had to group up down here, but they actually didn't start with a, with a heavy march until right here. And this is called Braddock's Road. We had this huge group. He had 100 miles to go from here up, up to, to the Fort Duquesne. And only the British would, would even attempt that kind of a, of a process. But then the, things went bad when they got, it, got up here and got close and, and ran into the French coming back, and it was just disaster, okay? So as a result of this, the French and Indian War expands from that little battle, okay? It was a major battle for them, but it was a little battle on a world stage. To, to now England declares war on France as a result of this battle. The war expands to Europe, Africa, Asia, and to South America. England and Pr Prussia are against France and Austria. So the winner gets control of expansion North and South America and essentially control trade throughout the world. So here, here's the way that the, the things looked at the time. You, based on the colors, you can see that this is Spanish, okay? Here we have, have the Russian Empire up here. We've got the British on this, okay? We've got the Dutch in here. We've got the Ottoman Empire. We've got the Portuguese Empire. But, the, but we've got battles going on here and here and here. A little one out here, and there's some down here in this part. So this... This was one of the first major worldwide wars, and the winner gets to control trade essentially throughout the world. So it lasted seven years, and if you look in other, other literature, they talk about the seven-year war. It's only in America that it's the French and Indian War. Okay? So the final action came on September 13, 1759, okay, when James Wolfe defeated the, defeated the French at, at Quebec. The treaty was not signed until 1763 in Paris. I mean, it takes a long time to get battle back from the battlefront, get on a ship, go over, you know, take care of all that stuff. So now the French lost Canada in all lands west of the Mississippi. There are four groups involved here. England, France, the colonies, and American and Canadian Indians. Okay? And often when we do this, we forget about the, the Indians in both Canada and America. We just talk about 
France and England and sometimes the colonies. Okay. So France lost Canada, all lands west of, to the, west, from west to the Mississippi. I'm sorry. All lands from the coast to the Mississippi. England gained Canada and the land between the coast and the Mississippi and had a significant national debt. Um, documents from the time indicated somewhere between 123 and 140 million pounds. Okay? I think that that's about equivalent to 50 billion pounds a day, about $78.5 billion. Okay? I think, because trying, trying to translate from that period of time to today's money is very difficult, okay? So here's the land that was ceded to Britain as a result of the French and Indian War. You can see it's, it's a big chunk here. Now France still contained this, okay? The Brits were here, all of this area, okay? And Spain is here, okay? So it was a big chunk of ground. I mean, this is the Ohio Valley. So looking at it in a bigger context, this is another author's view of this. This is before 1754, okay? So the French claimed all of this, okay? England claimed this and this little round piece, little piece here. And of course the Russians are up here. Now, in 1763, now this is all British, okay? And this is Spanish. And this is no man's land here, okay? Now, there's a piece right here, the proclamation line of 1763. That's along the Appalachians, and that's going to be significant as we, as we move forward, okay? So status here. The colonies learned that they could defend themselves. They really didn't need the Brits. They had provided troops, ships, and equipment and supplies, and a significant amount of money, and a lot of people. They also found that they, they could improve trade with non-English countries, okay? Because remember, that was a bone of contention with the king, but they figured out, well, we can do this anyway. They also became better connected as, as a quasi-government, if you will. The, the 13 colonies had a better connection with one another than they did previously. Previously, they were just 13 independent colonies. And they were not interested in helping the mother country pay for the debt for the war. Because the debt not only included stuff here, but worldwide. Okay? And they said, hey, it was just a little battle here. Okay? They believed that they had contributed enough in terms of money, people, individual lives, the loss of blood. They said, you know, enough's enough. In 1763, the British issued a royal proclamation as an attempt to improve relations between the colonies and the Indians. The proclamation of 1763 was the uh, first time that any uh, European government uh, used or coined the word for the term Indian country. And it described all the country uh, west of the Appalachians, essentially, uh, that was defined by a series of treaties negotiated uh, by the British Crown with the individual Indian tribes. And that country uh, was where the laws of the Indians uh, applied. In fact, the proclamation so says, the laws of the Indians apply, the laws of Great Britain did not. And if you went into the Indian country, you were subject to the laws of the Indian tribes. The proclamation of 1763, uh, like a lot of laws, probably did exactly the opposite of what it was intended to do. Uh, if it was intended to improve relationships between the colonies and the Indians, it seemed to do just the opposite because it, along with other uh, English enactments, became the reason for the American Revolution. It, in effect, prohibited colonies, colonists from going into the Indian country and trying to acquire Indian lands or to speculate in Indian lands. And that did not please the colonists. So 
it was designed to protect Indian country. And as the gentleman said, this is the first time those words had been ever used in any official documents to declare the Ohio Valley Indian country. Okay? And he said the Indian laws applied. So the big one here is it prohibits English settlement west of the Appalachian Mountains. And if you were already over there, you were supposed to gather up your stuff and move back east. Now, there was actually quite a few people living out there. My family was out there. And so this area, I mean, the, the Appalachians runs out, down, you know, a path down through like so, okay? But this, this is Cumberland County out here, which was established in 1750. So we're in Pennsylvania. You know, they haven't surveyed the area yet, but they've declared this a county. Okay, Pittsburgh is here. Uh, my family moved from here to here prior to the war. Okay, so they were in the process of moving out there, as were a lot of other people. And there was a lot of folks out, out here in this area. Not up here, this had not been purchased yet. Remember, Pennsylvania only moved people to an area for lands that they had purchased from the natives. Okay, That you were not allowed to be up here other than if you were trapping and you had an agreement or a treaty with, with tribes in the area. So here's the conclusion of this particular lesson. The French and Indian War was a key turning point in the development of America as a nation, and it was a key in, in the starting of the, of the war. And as mentioned earlier, the colonists became convinced that they could protect themselves, they could provide for themselves, okay? they could govern themselves without interference from Mother England. Okay? So if you didn't pick up one of the handouts back there, you might want that for this next piece. Okay. Did you all get the little handout with the, the, with the picture timeline on the front of it? Okay. Because if you look at the second page of this, you'll see that there's a huge number of events that are going to take place here, and I'm going to touch on several of them, okay? So Bob, it's that one there with the picture on it. No, you need, yeah, this one. Yep, you got it. Okay, all right. So our purpose is still the same. Background on the influence of Christianity, formation of America. We kind of diverge a little bit here because there's a lot of events go on hard to attach Christianity to each one of these, although we'll see later on when I do the, the lesson on pastors that we've got pastors involved at every stage of this. So we're at session five, which is going to be two pieces, actually. So this is leading up to the revolution. So here's the objective. The most apparent change in the role of the colonial church as of 1750. What happened? that got the churches involved. The key and significant steps that lead up to the American revolt against England. Remember, this is the most prosperous place on the planet. So why would they revolt? We're about to see why here, okay? How independence changed the relationship then between America and Europe. And one of the first key pieces has to do with the Anglican bishop controversy. So there was pressure by a group called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, and, if, and some aggressive folks in the Anglican Church, both in England and America, where they wanted to put an Anglican bishop controlled by England in America. So one of, one of the people who were outspoken against that was a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Mayhew, who was bishop. Okay. He said, if you do this, the result is going to be enslaving both body and souls of men in the colonies. So who is this guy? Well, he lived from 1720 to 1766. He was a congregational minister. 
in the Old West Baptist Old West Church in Boston, okay, big church that comes up several times. He pre his, as a preacher, it was a strong belief in individual responsibility, and he he spoke about Christianity's role in resistance against tyranny, okay. And he was a very def big defender of civil liberties. So you can see up front that this guy's not gung ho for the for the king. Here, okay. In theology, Mayhew was an Arminian. He saw divine will in terms of the power of love rather than of unmitigated force. Rejecting both Calvinistic dogmatism and Anglican authoritarianism, he preached a true primitive religion of strong belief in individual responsibility and private judgment. He believed that resistance to tyranny was a Christian duty, and he was an outspoken defender of civil liberties. When the British imposed the Stamp Act on the colonists, Early in 1765, he opposed it so zealously that he was accused of inciting the Stamp Act riots of that August, but he denied the charges and continued his vigorous opposition to the act. So this is one of his discourses, okay? The ensuing discourse is the last of three upon the same subject, with some little alterations and additions. It is hoped that, but few will think the subject of it an improper one to be discoursed on in the pulpit, under a notion that this is preaching politics instead of Christ. However, to remove all prejudices of this sort, I beg it, may be remembered that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why, then? Should not those parts of Scripture which relate to civil government be examined and explained? from the desk as well as others. Obedience to the civil magistrate is a Christian duty, and if so, why should not the nature, grounds, and extent of it be considered in a Christian assembly? Okay. So one of his big points is we ought to be involved as Christians in the politics of the day. Not so much politically, but in terms of the, the, the leaders that get selected, get voted in. Okay? And in laws that are passed, okay, because he was opposed to tyranny, and, and as you take people's liberty away, the, through laws that you do, you become a tyrant. So here were part of the fears. There, there were the Anglican Church, which was, was the largest church in the colonies at the time, they were afraid they were going to have to pay this bishop's salary and, and lodge him someplace. And they were also afraid that we would become an Anglican church state. Okay? So later on, John Adams said, this incident caused America to think seriously about the constitutional authority of parliament over the colonies. Because the parliament was pushing for this Anglican bishop to be here. All right, so we, got, we have that issue going on with, with this Anglican bishop, and then we've got this whole bunch of troops that are now on the ground. Before the war, there were only about 800 British soldiers here. After the war, between eight and 10,000. Now, what do you do with them? Well, the colonies were being required to pay the cost of them being here. Uh, that looked like somewhere around what, we, what today, as near as I can tell, about $97 million a year to house these folks. And that's a big chunk of money. Okay? I mean, it's a huge impact on them. And, and where are the Brits going to get the money? Well, we'll, we'll come to how they're going to do that here as, as we go forward. But the other one we just talked about earlier was with this proclamation of 1763, which essentially said if you were... If you were out here, okay, if you're out there in this area, you got to gather up your stuff, move back the other way. Okay? So we have that going on, and we kind of watch the timelines here. The war is over, right? You have this proclamation of 1763. You've got to figure out how to pay for these troops that are here. And so one of the things that, that England did, he said, oh, we're going to put a tax on sugar, okay? This was in 1764. So the Sugar Act is passed to offset war debt, okay, and help pay for the expenses of running the colonies, essentially to take care of the troops. 
It doubles the duties, not only on sugar, but all byproducts, but dyes, textiles, coffee, and wine, which are all imported. Okay? Well, that didn't set well, but right on top of that, there is the Currency Act. British currency in the colonies was, was really short. It was very difficult to get very much in terms of British pounds in your hand, even in the, the few banks that were there. So what are you going to do for trade? Well, a lot of it went on with the Spanish dollar, the pieces of eight, okay? Because there wasn't much around in terms of gold and silver. And then people figured out that they could, they could, could issue paper money based on commodities or land, okay? And banks would accept that, because they usually did it in cooperation with the banks. So it became essentially fiat money. But let's say that you had a warehouse full of, uh, full of tobacco, and it had a set value. You could go to the bank, okay? Or to an accounting house, somebody who had money, and say, listen, I, I want to borrow against the stuff I've got in the warehouse, and I'm going to issue some money so we can use that to exchange, you know, we can change that, and people can come back here and exchange that piece of money for an equal amount of tobacco. Okay? Well, now you've got paper money issued on a commodity that may increase or decrease in value. Okay? And so the value of, the, of these fiat pounds that were being issued varied dramatically. Because it, it, I'd say, listen, it's a five pound note, and you go, well, could be, but I'm going to give you three pounds for it. Okay? So, to help matters, because the colonies were issuing this money and therefore carrying on, being able to carry on trade, and the folks back in England went, no, no. Can't do that. The Currency Act prohibited the colonies from issuing currency as legal tender. This would make unstable all the economy within, within the region. Okay? It hurt both the North and the South, so you could only use British pounds, which were in short supply. Okay? So it created a lot of hassle, not the least of which was quite a bit of inflation. Okay? Even before the Declaratory Act was approved, Parliament had already passed another law intended to save the government money. It was called the Quartering Act and required colonial towns to provide shelter and supplies for the British troops in their localities. This was an unpopular law as well. And when the colony of New York tried to resist paying for the soldiers' upkeep, the British government shut down their legislature. In response, angry merchants in colonial ports boycotted, that is, refused to buy, British goods until the Quartering Act was changed. Not only did they require payment, but they, they could actually put British soldiers in your house. All right, now on top of this, we get the Stamp Act. Passed by Parliament, I mean, they're over there in England, right? Passed by Parliament. Taxed on the colonies to offset the high cost of the military, but it's a, it's a tax not produced by the local legislature, but a tax you know, that England has placed on stuff so that everything that is issued in terms of paper and we'll talk about what kinds here in a minute, has to have a stamp on it, and you have to pay the, the tax man. I think I got a little pretty clip here for it. London, spring of 1765. A debate in Parliament over what seems to be a very small shift in colonial policy. Running the overseas provinces has become extremely expensive. Parliament announces that for the first time, the Americans will pay a small tax, 
not to their local legislatures, but directly to England. I think perhaps the first thing that one has to say, looking back on it, seeing now, as we must do, that this was the opening of something which was going to be very big and very important, is that nobody realised that at the time. Uh, the British government had a variety of bits of legislation in hand, dealing with a variety of problems, as governments do. This was one of them, a moderately prominent piece of, of legislative programme of 1765, uh, tidying up various details of the administration of colonies. But it wasn't really a subject of vast interest. It was rather technical. It was extremely remote. If you had stopped the average man in the street and said, what do you think about the Stamp Act, my man? Uh, he would have said, what? It is called the Stamp Act because taxed items will have to carry a stamp paid for by the user. Test pressings are made and the new tax is set to go into effect in the fall. It takes six weeks by sailing ship for news of the tax to cross the ocean. When it arrives, the news creates a firestorm up and down the continent. For the colonial elite, the men who run the local legislatures, the Stamp Act is an outrage. It seems to confirm their worst suspicions that they are not respected in England, not worth even being consulted about this change in policy. George Washington is a delegate sitting in the Virginia legislature. The Stamp Act, imposed on the colonies by the Parliament of Great Britain, is an ill-judged measure. Parliament has no right to put its hands into our pockets without our consent. Even royal appointees like the highly regarded Thomas Hutchinson, Chief Justice of Massachusetts, are upset. You must not deprive the colonies of their right to make laws for themselves. Parliament should only make laws necessary for the empire as a whole. The larger meaning of their life was wrapped up in being, being Britons. They were proud not to be Dutch, not to be French, not to be Spanish colonists, but to be British colonists, and to have, for 150 years, tax themselves, govern themselves, behave just like independent Englishmen did although they were living in America. Now suddenly the Stamp Act implied that they were going to be governed, taxed by a parliament a long way away in which they had no representatives. Now the only people who were taxed without their consent in Britain were servants, people who didn't have any property, women, children, and so the Stamp Act seemed to Americans to reduce Americans to the same status as servants and women and all those dependent people who were uh, civilly emasculated. Uh, that is, they, 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 they didn't have any public, public role in their own governance. George Washington and other colonial leaders clearly see what will become of them unless they take action. A line should be drawn between Great Britain and the colonies, clearly establishing our rights. We must either assert our rights or submit and become tame and abject slaves like the Negroes over whom we rule with such arbitrary sway. This tax is gonna to touch everyone. It's probably one of the dumbest political acts in the history of government. They tax dice and cards. So the rowdiest group of people there are in the world, sailors in port with nothing to do, are going to be angry. They tax legal documents, which means that lawyers, the most articulate and argumentative people in America, are up in arms also. If the stamp man tells you to Shall he get away with it and live? Don't let your courage cool, or a few bullies scare you. We've nothing to fear but slavery. Love your liberty and fight for it like men who know its value. Once lost, it will never, never be regained. The question, in any case, was never the immediate 
amount of taxation that the British were asking of the colonists. The question was whether the British had the right to do it at all. We are talking about people with enormous sensitivity to the dangers of power. If you conceded the right to Parliament to tax, and if there was no check on it, no limit, it could go on indefinitely. You could be bled white. The power to tax was the power to destroy. The colonial legislators send official petitions to the British Parliament, petitions that are completely ignored. The colonists had been saved from the specter of the French and Indians, uh, and there certainly were a lot of people in Britain who thought that they should be properly grateful for all this effort that had been expended on their behalf, mostly at the expense of the British taxpayer, uh, and that it wasn't unreasonable that they should pay a modest share, greatly less than 100%, uh, of the cost of imperial defence in the future. The Stamp Act was a bad idea, but what could you do? That was the problem. Massachusetts came up with the answer, and it was a very good answer, a very simple answer. August 14, an effigy of the Stamp Man appears, hanging from what became Liberty Tree. Mobs collected, they bring coercion on him. In short, they force the Stamp Man, Andrew Oliver, to resign. Now, if you got one man to resign. If the Stamp Act stamps were not going to be distributed, well, the act couldn't be put into effect. The popular fury spreads. Thomas Hutchinson, Chief Justice of Massachusetts, is a passionate believer in law and order. Privately, he is against the stamp tax. Publicly, he makes it clear that he intends to enforce it. On August 26, 1765, a mob assembles outside his house, one of the most elegant in Boston. Hutchinson and his family have just finished high tea. Hutchinson escapes with his life and little else. Hutchinson thought the Stamp Act was a very bad policy, but it wouldn't have crossed his mind that you therefore would resist it, that you'd resist it with violence. It was unthinkable. Everyone will suffer if the peace and order in the community are destroyed. I hope everyone will see how easily the people may be duped, inflamed, and carried away with madness. The intimidation of royal officials spreads to other colonies. Would-be stamp distributors are attacked. Stamp paper is seized when it arrives from England. Colonial leaders propose a joint boycott of British goods. A Philadelphia lawyer, John Dickinson, supports this idea. The taxes and duties imposed on us by Parliament must be instantly opposed. The only effective opposition is through the concerted efforts of all the provinces. By uniting, we stand. By dividing, we fall. So this is the first big public outcry against stuff that's come over from England, okay? And some folks believe that the Sons of Liberty were the ones that instigated a bunch of this, although theoretically they hadn't formed yet, but who knows what Adams was up to, okay? Because Sons of Liberty were formed in 1765, so, we're, you know, I mean, this is not where you go down and file a nonprofit with the Secretary of State, right? So 
Who knows when they got pulled together? But this is an underground organization that's opposed to the Stamp Act. Okay. Now, some say that it didn't come about until afterwards, and others say no. They were very instrumental in all of this uproar that, that went on. Okay. So they're the ones that were using intimidation and force to eventually force the tax agents to resign. If you got the agent to resign, then there's nobody to collect the tax. So there's also a group called the Daughters of Liberty. Okay? Uh, they agreed to, to limit what they purchased from merchants that came from, if stuff came from England. We're going to try to figure out how to get by without buying anything that was produced in, in, in England. Okay? Women stopped buying English goods, and they also started raising their own sheep and weaving their own clothes from the wool. They experimented with tea substitutes. They also signed public subscriptions rolls, pledging not to buy English goods and some resisted getting married because setting up a household required a lot of goods. Now, this indicates that that happened over a period of time. You, you couldn't go, in one year, you're not going to get into the sheep business and start weaving clothes and all. So, uh, you know, th this was the beginning of, of a long issue. So the Stamp Act was repealed on March 18, 1766. And it was a lot of I mean, this is out of one of the newspapers. It probably wasn't colored then. I mean, I found it as a colored issue. So the, the folks in Parliament said, all right, I agree, it's a bad idea. But then they put together the Declaratory Acts, okay? So this happened on the same day that the Stamp Act was repealed. So it, it's stating, henceforth, all laws made by Parliament will be binding on the colonies. Remember, the colonies have been taking care of themselves for 150 years, and now Parliament's saying, all right, okay, no Stamp Act, but all laws we pass here apply to you, okay? And then the following year, there's the Townsend Act. So th this is an act placed, put tax on glass, paper, paints, tea, with a, with a customs board set up in Boston. Boston was the kind of the center of all activity, okay, it was this kind of somewhat center of, of colonial government, okay? And so the Bostonians said, we're just gonna boycott British goods, okay? And this act is also usually a tied to a group of acts called the Declaratory Act, okay? On the same day that the Stamp Act was repealed, they had passed a new piece of legislation, the Declaratory Act asserting the absolute right of the British Parliament to make laws for the American colonies in all cases whatsoever. A year later, Parliament puts teeth in the act with a new set of taxes on the colonies, this time in the form of stiff duties on manufactured goods from England. Everything from paint to window panes to tea. Benjamin Franklin fears there is going to be another firestorm of colonial protest and sends this poem to American newspapers urging moderation. We have an old mother who peevish is grown. She snubs us like children that scarce walk alone. She forgets that we're grown with sense of our own. If we don't obey orders, whatever the case, she frowns and she chides and loses all patience, and sometimes she hits us a slap in the face. Her orders are so, we often suspect, that age has impaired her of sound intellect. But still, an old mother should have due respect. The idea that a body of men in England, who know nothing about the colonies, who see nothing of the misery that their taxes will inflict upon us, have given themselves the right to command our lives and our property at all times and in all cases whatsoever, this is the logic of robbers and highwaymen. The Declaratory Act strikes terror in their hearts. 
Earlier in the century, an almost identical act had been used to subjugate Ireland. The colonists will have to take action. They know they have the power to hit England where it hurts. They will boycott British goods. George Washington. Block English goods. Starve their trade and manufacturing. Yes. The more I think about this plan, the more ardently I wish it success. Gentlemen in their several counties should explain matters to the people and urge them to adhere to the non-importation agreement. For the boycott to be effective, the entire population will have to be mobilized. But up to now, the leaders have not involved the common people in the workings of government. Indeed, they think that ordinary people have no capacity for political thought. Gentlemen lead. Commoners know their place. One of the hardest things, I think, for us to recapture of this distant, different world is the distinction between commoners and gentlemen, uh, a kind of distinction that we find hard to understand because for us, almost all adult males are gentlemen. Uh, we put it on our restroom doors, the term, but these gentlemen saw themselves as uh, separate from the rest of the populace. 18th century men, women, and children of every race, class, and region actually believed that hierarchy was the norm in nature and in society. Some people were better than other people. Some people were placed in circumstances that were better. Poor people were thought of as the poor. If you were wealthy, you were superior. That was how the world operated. This world is beginning to change as common people take an active role in the protest movement. For many of the colonial elite, it seems to threaten the very stability of society. There are these town meetings which people of wealth and character do not even attend because they are sure to be outvoted by men of the lowest order. So it is government by the mob. This has given the inferior people such a sense of their own importance that a gentleman does not get from them even common civility anymore. As the boycott grows and shops once filled with British merchandise begin to empty, more and more people are choosing to make do without imported manufactured goods. I have cut back on every superfluous expense. I haven't even bought a new cap or gown since last Christmas. I'm even learning how to knit, something I've never done before. Making stockings out of good New England wool, throwing my might for the public support. The very idea that their American cousins are involving commoners, and now even women in politics, is a subject for hilarity by London cartoonists. But the merchants and manufacturers in England are not amused. Their factories and counting houses are feeling the pinch. The British Ministry blames a few ringleaders for all the troubles, particularly a Boston radical who celebrates popular protest, Samuel Adams. I am no friend of riots and tumults. But when people are oppressed, when their rights are infringed upon, when, when, when arbitrary rulers are put over them, when government is secret, the people become alarmed. If they have any spirit of freedom, they'll fight for their liberties, and they're justified in doing so. Unofficial courts, run by popular committees, begin dispensing a rough form of justice. It is more than some gentlemen have bargained for. A few days ago, we got a taste of committed justice. They got hold of a customs officer by the name of Malcolm. It was the coldest night of the winter. He's stripped, stark naked, his body covered all over with tar and then with feathers. They drag him through town in a cart, Crowds beating him with clubs, they say they'll hang him unless he'll curse the governor and the parliament, which they couldn't make him do. 
The doctors say his flesh was coming off his back in slabs. It's impossible that the poor creature can live long. So notice the other important piece here, that rather than just the elite being involved in this, you have this mass movement of, of the common people. Okay? That's carried over to today. I mean, that, that's the, the American independent, individual independent voter. Okay? It, it's, it's those of us on the bottom of the, of the rung here. So th this conflict expands in Philadelphia and Boston, which are the two big centers of, of population. Okay? And it's on the boycott that we just talked about and on unpaid duties. Okay? So, so there were goods that had come in that were in sh sitting on ships and some of them in warehouses. They couldn't distribute them because they were, the duties weren't paid on them and no one was willing to pay them. And when you had a, a, a custom agent that wanted to do that, they had this rough methodology that they dealt with them. So it's like, you know, get out of town. So it's, things are getting more and more rambunctious. You've got this eight to 10,000 British soldiers, okay? A big number of them are in the Boston and Philadelphia area, okay? And you've got the Sons of Liberty that are in the background generating some hostility. They're talking about these are the things that the British government is doing uh, that are going to take away your liberty. Okay? Thus the Sons of Liberty. And, and that's going to spill over in, into the Boston Massacre. March 5th, 1770. After three days of unrest, an angry mob roams the streets. Hundreds of men who lost their jobs and blamed the British gather on King Street and face off against eight redcoats with orders not to fire. What's about to happen will change America forever. A 17-year-old wig maker's apprentice, Edward Garrick, lights the fuse. This is how wars start. Private Hugh Montgomery is hit with a club. African-American Crispus Attucks dies instantly. When the smoke clears, Four more are dead. How Boston reacts will change the course of history. Silversmith and political radical Paul Revere captures the moment British soldiers kill five colonists in the streets of Boston. His engraving will fuel the fires of revolution as outrage spreads across the 13 colonies. Unhappy Boston, see thy sons deplore, thy hallowed walks besmeared with guiltless gore, whilst faithless Preston and his savage bands with murderous rancor stretch their bloody hands. 
the most formidable army in the world, firing on an unarmed crowd. An explosive image with a title that says it all. The Bloody Massacre. So as a piece of trivia, who was the lawyer that uh, defended the British? John Adams. Yeah. Come close to losing him the vice presidency and the, and the presidency. And, and he did it on the basis of everyone deserves a defense. All right, remember the Sons of Liberty. Now that kind of expands into the Committee of Correspondence, and this is where the churches become come involved. So the Committee of Correspondence is organized by Adams, okay, in Boston, and its intent is to keep the other colonies informed of what's going on, okay. So he he writes he and others write letters, and they send those to churches throughout the colonies. And typically, what would happen is a pastor would say, I received a letter from the Committee of Correspondence. After service, I will read that for those of you who want to stay. stay okay? Seldom did they read it as part of their message, but it was, this was the correspondence. I mean, newspapers were not that easy to get printed and distributed, but individual letters, you could write those, okay? And, and get you know several people in the room and all going to write a, a similar letter and send that those out. Okay. So these are going out talking about the stuff that's going on, going on around Boston in the area, and then on top of everything else in 1772, there's this thing called the Gatsby Affair. So in June of 1772, a, a guy by the name of Lieutenant William Dingington, I guess it is, he's he's on the Majesty's ship. You, the, you, I was trying to think what the letters are. I can't remember offhand, but it's a, it's a Gatsby, okay? He's charged with patrolling the waters in second. I can't talk today. Oh. Anyway, in this bay that's, that's right here, okay? So to give you some point, this is Newport, okay? Providence is about right there, and this is going to be an important area, this Warwick area right here. So, th so this is an area you see lots of islands in here, okay? So he, he'd become very aggressive in stopping vessels and in taking the, the cargo, okay? And just creating havoc. So there was a vessel, okay? The USS Hannah was out of Newport on its way up to Providence, okay? And it, the, the captain was Benjamin Lindsay, okay? And so the HMS Gatsby, saw him, took chase, and so he leads the Gatsby into shallow waters, because this is, this is a shallow vessel, okay? Unlike the Gatsby that had, you know, was not made for shallow water. So this one, this is just moving stuff around in this bay that has lots of shallows in it. And so not only that, but he knew the area. So he got him run aground somewhere off of Warwick, and a party of 35 attacked the ship, okay, captured the crew, and looted it and set the vessel on fire, burn it to the waterline, okay? Now, you can imagine that didn't make the Brits all that happy, okay? Now we're, we're still in, we're in 1772, now we're in 73. We'll do this and then call it a day, okay? So this is the famous Tea Act, okay? Posing attacks on, on tea entering into the colonies and gave a monopoly to this group called the East India Tea Company. Now, you would think, because they also reduced the price of some tea, said, you know, here's a bunch of tea, you can have this at, at a reduced price. You'd think that'd make people happy, but it didn't. So let, let's do the, do the Boston Tea Party. In the fall of 1773, the British government hits on what it thinks will be a way of taxing the colonies that they will actually welcome. The East India Company has a surplus of tea. 
Parliament decides to ship half a million pounds of this tea to America at an extremely low price, with a nominal tax of three pennies a pound. The colonists, they reason, could not possibly object to paying less for their tea. In every colony where the tea is landed, there are loud protests. It is either sent back or stored unsold in warehouses. In November of 1773, three British ships, the Dartmouth, the Beaver, and the Eleanor, arrived in Boston Harbor, their holds jammed with 114 chests of the now controversial tea leaves. By law, the tea tax must be paid within three weeks. The decision over what to do next is squarely in the hands of Governor Thomas Hutchinson. I lie awake whole night in fear that I shall be called to account in England for my neglect of duty to the king. Hutchinson could have written to England and said, I know the law, I know my duty, but I cannot enforce the law. It's physically impossible. But he didn't. It's a standoff between the radicals. We dare you to have this tea unloaded. We're strong enough, we're powerful enough now, we're organized enough to make, to make a power play against you. And Hutchison, who says, you will not humiliate me, you will not defy English law like this. I will see this tea unloaded and delivered as it should be. Bostonians once again took to the streets. As usual, Samuel Adams had a plan. And there was a great mass meeting, the old South Meeting House. People literally leaning in through the windows, the galleries filled to overflowing. People asking, what shall we do? What shall we do? It was Samuel Adams, who went and rose in the pulpit of the Old South. And there in the pulpit of the Old South, he called out to these Bostonians. There is nothing more we can do for our country. Those words were a prearranged signal known only to the Sons of Liberty. Then, uh, as if by magic, Mohawk Indians, Sons of Liberty, that is, disguised as Mohawks, appeared from the pews. Then they marched down to the waterfront, chanting, out is salt water mixed with tea. And of course, then the tea party took place. The counterfeit Indians boarded the boats, smashed the containers, and in less than three hours, brewed 342 chests of tea in Boston Harbor. The party was a very limited act of violence, in fact. They, they do nothing but dump tea. Uh, a padlock is broken, it's replaced. We think of this as a lot of yahooing and yelping and noise. It was just sort of ploop. Ploop, <laughs> ploop. Uh, they, they were very, very careful to keep this from getting out of hand. We're all throwing the tea overboard. We catch someone in our party trying to stuff some of the tea into his pockets. He is stripped of his booty and his clothes, and we send him home naked in disgrace. Then we went home in an orderly fashion. Boston enjoys the most peaceful night it has had in many a month. The British respond by shutting down Boston Harbor. One of America's busiest, wealthiest ports. Hundreds lose their jobs. Come on, the British mean to strangle any resistance from the rebellious colony of Massachusetts. America is about to change forever. Tensions escalate far beyond Boston. pick it up there next time because the other piece that they don't talk about is that the difficulty of getting the tea off of the vessels the the, the dock workers refused to unload the tea okay? so they couldn't unload the tea and get it in the warehouse 
then there couldn't get a, be a tax on it. As long as it was on the vessel, okay, it couldn't be taxed. It couldn't be taxed till it was in the warehouse. Okay. And so that's kind of hidden in the background of this. It, it, they didn't refuse to do any work. They just refused to unload the tea. So I think we're about, I don't know, halfway or three-quarters of the way through the list of, of incidents that are going to create a war here. So we'll pick it up here next Sunday. <laughs>